Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You're listening to World Weekly with me, Jonathan Derbyshire. The 21st FIFA World Cup begins in Russia on June the 14th amid concerns about hooliganism, smaller-than-usual visitor numbers, and a sense that international football these days is a diminished thing by comparison with the all-powerful club game. Joining me in the studio in London are Gideon Rachman, the FT's Chief Foreign Affairs Commentator, and Murad Ahmed, the FT's Leisure Correspondent. And joining us on the line from Paris is FT Weekend columnist Simon Cooper. Thank you all for joining me. Every World Cup begins with anxieties about whether stadia have been finished on time, about the quality of the practice pitches, and about hooliganism. But there are serious concerns, Mirad, aren't there, about this tournament uh, for various reasons. After the Sochi Winter Olympic Games of 2014, do you think we can expect a well-run tournament from Russia? What Sochi taught us is that the Russians now had to put on a mega event and that it will run like clockwork, even to the point in the Sochi case where it seems now that the Russians were trying to dictate who ended up on the podium. Every part of the operation at Sochi seemed to work well. The Russian organisation will be there for this World Cup. Whether or not there'll be local enthusiasm for the event is unclear. Sponsors haven't exactly come running to support the event. The Russian national team appears to be terrible and could be one of the worst host nation teams ever. But whether or not it'll have that feel of a festival of football remains to be seen. Simon, politics always intrudes on a World Cup, but do you think it will do so this time in a way that we haven't seen since Argentina in 1978, when the tournament took place in a country that was ruled by a military junta? That's right, yes. We haven't had an autocratic host for 40 years. Putin, I think the plan has changed over the last 10 years. When he bid 10 years ago, the Russian team was quite strong. Russia was not unfriendly to the West. So he probably thought it's a kind of coming out show like the Beijing Olympics of that summer probably inspired him. Now, of course, Russia's the pariah of the West. So he's really offering his people, his main constituency, a, uh, an enjoyable show. They, you know, expectations for Russia have been ratcheted down. There's not this kind of one team, one nation campaign they had for Sochi in 2014. He's planning for Russia to do badly, but for everyone to have a bit of fun, young urban Russians are... Um, keen on foreign football they'll you know watch Messi and Ronaldo and also um, he has Putin has a kind of campaign for better public health always a problem in Russia and this World Cup will be part of that and he'll be able to you know thumb his nose at the West say look you know you can boycott me you have to watch me hosting the world's biggest show Uh, I win again another symbolic victory. Gideon a symbolic victory for Putin. Well, I mean, Boris Johnson, Britain's foreign secretary, and of course, Britain has a pretty, uh, not uniquely bad relationship with Russia, but but among the worst. But he did say it would be, I think he said, an emetic prospect watching uh, Putin (laughs) handing over the World Cup. Yeah, I mean, it's too soon to say whether it's a symbolic victory. I suspect uh, it will it will go reasonably well. I certainly hope so, since I'm going. But um, there are things that could go wrong. You you could have such a kind of embarrassingly poor performance by the Russian team that that's been mentioned. The hooliganism issue, I think, is a real one. I suspect they'll keep a lid on it. But Russian fans are among the nastier fans in the world. 
the distances involved in this World Cup are, are pretty huge. So I think fans will find it expensive to get around. The Russians are laying on free trains, but they're, it's like 12 hours between Moscow and St. Petersburg, that, that kind of thing, certainly on the free trains. Um, so it, it does present some particular difficulties. Um, but I think that generally, as you, as you alluded to, World Cups always have this kind of nervous run-up. You know, terrorism has been a worry in the past mm. as well. Um, and indeed, in some in Brazil and South Africa, crime was a big concern. But generally, uh, at the end, it, it, the show goes on and it goes on okay. Murad, do World Cups still offer the host country the kind of diplomatic payoff that they once did? It depends on why you're holding it. As Simon's pointed out, when Russia got this World Cup, there was a sense that Russia was looking for more than one coming out party. It was awarded the World Cup around the same time as the Sochi Games. In the past 10, 20, 30 years, we have seen relatively stable hosts that are not trying to make a huge geopolitical statement, maybe other than South Africa, which became the first African host. It's largely been about having the world football party at your door and having home advantage. In Brazil last time around, there was so much pressure on the host nation to win it, and at least we won't see that on the sporting side this time. And as we know about the economics of hosting a mega event, if you go into these things thinking you're going to make a whole load of money, you'll be sorely disappointed. Let's turn from the geopolitics and the economics of the World Cup to the to the sporting side. Every tournament begins with a refereeing innovation, uh, an innovation um, in the laws of the game. This year we'll be seeing, Simon, the use of VAR, the Video Assistant Referee System. Do you expect that to work well? I mean, it actually affects very few decisions. For referees, a lot of decisions are, um, well, the players were more or less in line with this offside. Was he just on in line enough or not? Or, um, you know, the player was pushing and holding and kicking him, but that always happens in every tackle. Is this enough to give a penalty? So, in fact, refereeing decisions in football are more about judgment than about uh, yes, no. It's not very binary. I don't think that we're going to have matches decided by VAR, things set right. The thing everyone has in mind is um, Jeff Hurst's goal in the 1966 World Cup final. Was it over the line or not? Well, 50 years later, there's still some debate, even with new technology, <laughs> whether it was. So uh, I think this is um, a little bit of a, um, a red herring. I alluded earlier to the sense that um, the international game has been bypassed by the club game, certainly the way um, clubs at the highest level in the UEFA Champions League play it. This is a question for all of you. Do you expect a high quality tournament? I read an interesting article from the Guardian journalist Michael Cox suggesting that we'll see a very different game to that which we see in the Champions League, where the game is played at a high pace and is about intense pressing of the opposition. We probably won't see that in this tournament, will we? Yes, the Champions League pressing, I mean we've never seen football played at such a pace and this kind of um, constant attack by many big teams, which is why you've got a lot of big wins, especially from Liverpool in the Champions League. Mm. You know, you attack at 100% pace for 30 minutes at a time, much longer periods than were feasible for, before. To do that, you need players who are not only at their uh, peak, which you know by June they won't be, but also you need all 11 players to be in the right positions all the time. It's very hard to achieve that with a national team. So I don't think you'll see much of that, except possibly from Germany. But the other difference, um, just, I mean, I interviewed Roberto Martinez, the Belgium coach, about this, and he said, look, it's inevitable that World Cup football is worse than club football, because with a club, you, you have 60 training sessions in summer before the season even starts. Then you play 60 games together, so you, you know each other 
you know, blindfold. And in World Cups, it simply isn't that way. You have teams that barely know each other. I mean, the interesting thing was that, uh, as Cox uh, pointed out in that piece, that 30 years ago, Arrigo Sacchi, the coach of the great Milan side of the late 80s and early 90s, said, and I think he was talking just before the World Cup in Italy in 1990, that club football could never aspire to the heights that international football reached. Murad, you wanted to come in here. Well, that was prior to the the Bosman ruling, which basically uh, internationalised football. Before that, National League could have a, a three-foreigner limit. That was no longer possible. So now you do have in, in Europe's big leagues players from all around the world, all, all, all across Europe, and they are the very best of the best, and they uh, play with each other. So you're getting this kind of World Cup moment all the time, on our screens all the time, and they are... Uh, they, can perfect football played at, at, at an incredible pace. I think what you might find in this World Cup in particular uh, is uh, what we found in the last European Championships was a lot of teams, because they have such limited time to get together, dis- decide to defend incredibly deep, which might end up for some stodgy football. But I do hope I'm wrong. I think there are some national teams, Germany is one of them, but particularly Spain as well, who have identified a kind of structure and a style of play that goes across uh, all of their players, and maybe we could see some joined-up football from uh, some of the favourites. Gideon, interestingly, England, under the coach coaching of Gareth Southgate, have also tried to change the way they play. Southgate has a number of players playing for some of Europe's leading coaches. You think of the players at Manchester City under Pep Guardiola, those at Tottenham Hotspur under Maurizio Pochettino, and those at Liverpool, as Simon mentioned, under Jurgen Klopp. And all those coaches play a high-pressing, uh, high-possession game, don't they? Yeah, I mean, it looks like he's going to try to uh, get over the ancient English curse, which would obviously fell us once again. But but he's <laughs> he's going to try to, I think, meld uh, those three teams that you mentioned, which play a similar sort of pressing style, and 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 see whether he can kind of create an amalgam of some of the. Uh, top three clubs with a similar style. But, I mean, I think that one of the things that's, that's an interesting contrast with previous World Cups of being ancient enough to, to remember the, you know, the World Cups of the 70s and the 80s where there were very distinct national styles and the players were a kind of surprise. You know, I remember you saw the Dutch in the 1970s. Well, OK, they had, you had seen Ajax before, but kind of where have these guys come from? They never played in a World Cup before so far far as I know and they played a very distinct styles a lot of the players you've never heard of that you'd come across for the first time now all these players are international stars sort of playing for multinational corporations if you like the, mm. big, the big clubs and so there's there's less of a surprise either in the players or in the style you know so that someone like Mohamed Salah of Egypt might in previous years have been a complete surprise package now he, he arrives as a sort of international star. Simon, globalisation has destroyed the element of surprise at the World Cup. Do you agree with that? Yeah, and I think it's weakened the uh, appeal of the football because, as Gideon says, in the old days, it was much more exciting and fun. It was like watching a film you'd never seen before with uh, 16 different characters, all of them strong. Now it's like watching a bad version of the film you have seen before with 32 characters, most of (laughs) whom are boring. So um, people, I think, love the World Cup now for slightly different reasons. It's much more about the fan carnival. And because everyone now has a uh, camera themselves, you can watch the World Cup and be in a Nigerian bar. You can you know, get action from a Nigerian bar. Your friend can, who's in the stands in Russia can send you a video of uh, himself with his mates in the stand. And so that, and you can also banter on social media. And you 
And I think that has become much more what the World Cup is about. Whereas in the 70s, we did actually sit there and watch the game. Gideon? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I suspect that that is true. I mean, the thing is, this will be like the, uh, I think the fifth World Cup I've been to. And FIFA seems to be making it progressively harder. You know, it used to be like you went to a kind of normal country and you could to France or Germany where there were trains it worked and there were lots of hotels and that kind of thing. That was, you know, 98 and 2006. But then they kind of really up the ante and you, you go to vast countries like South Africa or Brazil where there are hundreds of miles between the games and uh, and it really gets quite arduous. Although in a way, if you've got a sort of inner travel agent, that certainly kind of, you know, you can indulge yourself because it's quite strikingly hard to, to, to navigate these World Cups. I think this is probably the biggest geographical canvas the tournament's been played on since uh, the US in 94. Murad, Simon says this is a movie we've seen before. And certainly this tournament, it's one in which the two central characters, Lionel Messi and Hmm. Cristiano Ronaldo, are probably past their peak. This is certainly going to be a valedictory tournament for them, isn't it? I think so. Or it it could be uh, uh, victorious, at least for Messi, who has a team around him of pretty decent players in in Argentina without a system, without a way of, of playing. Uh, Simon wrote an excellent piece about that in uh, FT Weekend. I think there's an opportunity to see some of the younger stars. You know, we mentioned Salah, there's Dybala at Argentina, but it's not clear if he'll actually make the team. Belgium seem to have a, a team of stars in De Bruyne and Eden Hazard, and and um, French team look incredibly strong, although I have doubts about their coaching um, with uh, Antoine Griezmann and Paul Pogba and the like. So there are there's a kind of a supporting cast that I think is attractive. I, I'm just going to dissent a little bit with the, the lack of excitement about a World Cup, the, the kind of giddy excitement that I had when I was a kid. I still sense it in my 11-year-old nephew who's, you know, written out uh, every game and is going to watch every single one. And he, like me, seems to appreciate and like the kaleidoscope of players. The fact that you have a existing narrative and storyline that you get with the club game is going to be completely shaken up and thrown about and you're going to have a very different kind of look. Simon, you're based in, in Paris. How much excitement is there about uh, Les Bleus? I gather um, President Emmanuel Macron was due to meet the team this week. Uh, they obviously have some seriously talented players, Pogba, Griezmann, Lamar. Um, are you expecting big things from them? They have potential. I mean, uh, Pogba is uh, talented but may not even be playing. I mean, uh, he's, he's been a bit disappointing and such is the talent that they could easily compose. You know, a world-class uh, midfield of um, Kante, Toliso, Matuidi uh, without thinking about Pogba. So the problem I've seen the last couple of uh, home matches is they can't defend, uh, partly because they have all these brilliant strikers who don't do much, uh, you know, boring defending. So uh, Mbappe, uh, Griezmann, uh, Giroud, less brilliant, but extremely effective. Um, it, it, it's, it's almost embarrassing. You look at the talent they have. They didn't even pick Anthony Marshall for the World Cup. And uh, yet whenever there's an attack, they seem undermanned in defence. So I, I, I see them as a bit too fragile to last seven matches. Murad, you wrote recently about um, FIFA's next big decision after this tournament, which is who will host the tournament in 2026. And it's currently between the US and its neighbours or Morocco. Where, where, is, where are the votes uh, looking like they're going to go? 
if there's one thing that I enjoy more than a sporting tournament, it's an election, and this combines the two. And I, I and I've been obsessed with this for uh, for a while now. So, like you say, it's a North American bid, which is a powerhouse bid, record profits, m- much more money than uh, being thrown at FIFA than ever before, and a kind of the plucky underdog in Morocco. And it seems incredibly close. I've spent a few weeks talking to people who will be voting so the members themselves people inside fifa uh, and they think that it is very tight if we put it into kind of geographical blocks it seems clear that the north american bid has most of its own continent and south america locked up that's about 45 votes Uh, morocco has most of africa uh, um, locked up, that's about 50 so they're both kind of halfway there the battle will be in Europe and Asia and it seems that the resentment towards uh, the US President Donald Trump is playing a outsized role in this and mm. he has been trying to get involved by tweeting about what appear to be veiled threats towards uh, countries, particularly African countries. Not that veiled. Well, exa- <laughs> well, exactly. Uh, and standing next to the Nigerian president on a summit about trade and saying, we'll be very grateful for your support on our bid. I mean, the conversations I've had with some people, it doesn't necessarily come up as a personality issue with the president, but definitely his uh, policies. The immigration ban seems to come up the uh, the southern border wall comes up in in, in these conversations. Mm. So it, these things are essentially, it seems to me, uh, popularity contests, and it'll be a, a a good gauge of how popular the United States can be with a drag on the ticket like Donald Trump. Yeah, I mean, I think the other thing one shouldn't forget is that uh, FIFA itself is under a massive cloud. Mm. I mean, the half, uh, I, I, I don't know whether it's half literally, but a large number of the executive committee were arrested, have been on trial in the United States. And I think Murad alluded to it. that makes it an interesting choice for, for the for the FIFA executive as they vote. Are they thinking about their reputations? Are they even thinking about the possibility that, you know, a lot of them said, well, we were picked on by the US because we failed to vote for them in the last uh, round of World Cup. So are they worried about corruption investigations in the United States if they don't vote for America? Or might it go the other way, that they're so annoyed by what happened last time that they're unlikely to give it to America? I'm going to ask each of you in a moment to predict a winner. First, I'd like to ask all of you whether there's a team you'll be rooting for aside from your national team. Well, the national team I always support, although I'm not Dutch, is Holland because I grew up there. And the Dutch tradition is to support Belgium in uh, in moments like these. Mm. But there's a worrying trend, I find, you know, as a, as a purist traditionalist, that many Dutch people are supporting Germany. And, for example, I heard today the Dutch Express Tourist Association in Singapore has officially come out today saying they are going to support Germany. So, um, I mean, this is also, you see it in politics as well. Uh, Netherlands is becoming a kind of political province of Germany's uh, voting <laughs> block in the EU. And I just can't do it. I mean, I, I love the Germans. I'm a big fan, but I don't think one should ever support them in football. Yeah, I mean, I, I think uh, as as an English person, it is kind of, it's difficult to imagine supporting Germany. Um, <laughs> but I, I think that... For me, the, the the side that I tend to back actually emerges during the World Cup mm. because you, you a side will sort of capture your imagination. You'll say, "Wow, they're really great." Let's uh, you know you get behind them. 
I would certainly, even though they're in the same group as England, be looking at Belgium, partly because I lived there for five years, but they're also a fantastic team, potentially, and I'd love to see them them, uh, thrive. The one that strikes me is Egypt. Um, uh, Multiple reasons for this. One of my favourite moments of a World Cup growing up was my dad watching um, uh, the USA versus Iran when Iran won. I couldn't imagine him being more excited and I come from a Muslim family and he was very much supporting any Islamic nation at the World Cup and I'm sure it'll be the same in our household. Mohammed Salah of Egypt has been a, a, a huge force seemingly for good and for joy in the Arab world and in the Muslim world and I know that during the Champions League final I had Manchester United supporting relatives feeling are very very conflicted because they very much wanted to support Mo Salah if they uh, even if they didn't want to support Liverpool that part is out of the way and they can support Egypt to, to their heart's content and they seem to have a good shot of getting out of their group and going into the uh, the latter stages so I'll be watching them closely Gideon Simon uh, Murad mentioned uh, Iran's defeat of uh, the United States in the 1998 World Cup do you do either of you have a favorite World Cup moment Simon I'm I'm guessing Dennis Bergkamp in Mars say in 1998 might be up there for you uh i watched that game in a hotel room and then i watched the holland brazil semi in um in the stadium in marseille and it was it was too stressful actually i um i just couldn't cope and so i stopped watching the game and i you know just looked around the stands and everything so that would not be it i mean nothing beats watching world cups as a child and i was 12 years old in 1992 you had italy brazil you had maradona being sent off you had the france west germany semi-final and Sevilla, which germany's you know won off this marathon uh, game on penalties nothing will ever match that for me gideon i think i agree with that can i have three moments but i'll do yep. it briefly so i mean i agree with simon that that the sort of those early world cups are kind of etched in the memory and in 1986 world cup for me because it almost sort of broke up what was about to be my my marriage because I went to Barcelona with my then girlfriend and I kept saying well I'll only watch the England games and then I sort of ended up watching you know endless games in bars which went on to midnight Um, but for being in the stadium the most dramatic uh, thing I ever saw was seeing Germany knocked out of the World Cup in 2006 Mm. by the Italians uh, which was uh, you know in Germany incredible atmosphere the Germans expected to win were desperate to win it was a sort of masterclass of defence by the Italians and then they knocked them off in the last bit of extra time it was it was a very very dramatic game can I butt in with a couple of my favourites just quickly just my, my, my seminal moments were 1990 1994 uh, Roberto Baggio in both of those uh, really uh, stands out, particularly him blazing the ball over the bar in a, in a terrible final, but a, a dramatic penalty shootout in, in 94. Um, and also Roger Miller in, in 1990. I remember that Colombia um, Cameroon match where he, he nabbed the ball off the goalkeeper and, and scored and, and did a celebration. I think I was in love with football from that moment onwards. OK, the question we can't avoid, who's going to win, Murad? I think Spain. I think they've got an excellent attack. They've been fantastic for the last year or so. I think they'll do it this time. Simon? Last time I predicted Brazil, so uh, just to jinx the Germans, I'll say Germany. And Gideon? Yeah, Simon got there before me. I th- I, th- I think Germany. They they seem to have this knack of, of winning in, in big tournaments. As they say, you can never write off the Germans. And that's it for this week. My thanks to Gideon Ratman, Murad Ahmed and Simon Cooper. World Weekly is produced by Murray Withers. Till next week, goodbye. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.